My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. this episode of well-being and the roots of it, I'm going to move on from where I started with the infant life and the sensory life and regulation of small babies into the stages when children become more exploratory, when they take their first tentative steps beyond the safety of being held and carried by their parents into a world that stimulates them in a whole host of new ways. And there is a relationship and important role there for the carers of that child in terms of creating environments in which they can safely explore. And it's interesting to think back about what that might have been like when our infant selves back in our ancestors were able to explore maybe a forest floor or a part of a grassland and how far away from a camp full of carers and adults that had the duty of keeping an eye on children and what that might have been like and how that compares to the situation for many parents today where there's just one parent trying to keep an eye on a child that's beginning to be adventurous. I know that when my children were small, I used to say I parent not only by sight, but also by sound, by kind of hearing the noises and thinking, what have they picked up now if they had begun to crawl away from me when they've got to be mobile? And that relationship of paying attention to what signals and messages a parent is giving a child is still very important at this stage and it really influences what the what the child begins to feel about the safety of their environment and how many threats that they are experiencing in it. But also what begins to happen is the this very amazing small mammal ability that is not just for humans, but lots of small mammals, which is this incredibly important aspect of our development, which is when we begin to play. One of the earliest games, children maybe don't do this kind of play until they can move more of their selves in an independent way. And one of the first things is when they can hold and grasp and then release something. This is a baby maybe holding something and dropping it. And for them, there's a concept in psychology 
that talks about object constancy and what, what's meant by that is not just physical objects and where they are in the world and where they go, but also knowing that when a parent is not there does not mean they are utterly gone. And that's that transition between the early infant needs of actually having to have a parent there to regulate everything, heart rate and so on, to not needing the parent there to be able to be left alone for short times. But there's this interesting stage as that gets developed where you play the game of peekaboo or hiding an object or something being dropped and then you pick it back up again and show it to the child or you appear from behind your hands and the child is laughs with shock and delight. That edge between where humour begins to develop and humour has this interesting aspect of something that makes us laugh is often something that is a little shock. And so it's that little shock of where was it? It's disappeared, even though I just dropped it and I can't see it. It's gone completely. And then suddenly it magically reappears. And it's kind of a magic trick that you can do for quite a long time for those early crawling infants as they move into toddlerhood. And then there's a moment where they know where it is. So where you maybe hid something under a blanket and they don't know where it is to a moment where they can point and they realize it is there still. It's just in a place they can't see it, but that doesn't mean it's completely gone. That's really important for the relationship to, for care, to know and to feel secure that there is still a connection between you and a loved one, even if you can't see them. There's one other little aspect that comes into that play that's kind of fun, which is that when children hide themselves when they're still in the stage of exploring that constancy, if they put themselves under a blanket, they think they are gone and you can't and that you can't see them. So you see a child hiding behind a blanket, hiding behind their hands, and they and and the adults around them maybe going, Where are they? Where have they gone? And it's a fun piece of that are you still there? And as that feeling is established and as that security is established, that then the next part that comes into the play is part of that curiosity and exploration. So it is doing things out and beyond the mother or father or carer where you're, an infant might be putting things in their mouth. And the mouth is, is really the, where it's at for sensation for small children. They want to know the world first through this mouth that they have had as really a dominant sensation because of being fed. So when food is really all that they're about, food and cuddling and pooping is kind of all that they're about in this really early wet stage of, of tiny childhood. And so many things when they get moving, they want to feel it through their mouth. They also like seeing things and touching things with their hand, but there must still this really important oral organ of, of, of testing and checking, which is something that can be a challenge for parents caring for infants and making sure that they're not putting anything in their mouth that they shouldn't for safety reasons. Although there's many things they can. It's also something that's going on when they explore the world that way is that they're going out beyond into testing and firing off their immune systems. And so some of the things being put in their mouth that are maybe not so clean in terms of bacteria and so on, 
these things are part of what begins to move the immune system from the kind of protection of the mother. It's a really interesting thing that when a baby is born, they come out of the mother sterile from the womb. The womb is a sterile environment where the baby in the amniotic fluid is protected from harmful bacteria. And so their skin doesn't yet have the beneficial bacteria all over it that we carry with us all the time that help protect us as another layer between us and harmful bacteria and infective bacteria that might cause us issues. And so when a baby is born, if they're lifted up onto the mother's chest to have that first feed, that the first thing that happens when they have that close contact is they're quite close to under the mother's armpits and bacteria from the mother's skin to skin with the baby colonize the baby quickly with beneficial bacteria. And so it's part of that where all of the food has been maybe coming from a mother, if a mother's been able to breastfeed. And if not, then she's had to do a lot of sterilizing of bottles and baby containers for food. But there's this kind of movement into putting other kinds of foods and less sterile foods and like that into the floor and into things they can put in their mouths. So when that stage is is developing, the interaction and the playfulness and the engagement with the environment and also slowly but surely that experimental independence where a child might crawl away from a carer and then look back to see are they still being looked after, is it still okay? Later when they're up on their two feet, you often see toddlers that will run forward away from from an adult on a walk or something, but then they check back and they're reveling in the beginning of a kind of empowerment that is only built upon throughout their lives of feeling able to do things. A toddler that begins to talk, some children don't talk for a few years, but toddlers that begin to talk will say things like, I do it myself, because they want to try out any of the skills. And even before they talk, you'll often see a child who's been maybe spoon-fed for a while, grabbing for the spoon and wanting to try that for themselves. So there's this really strong impetus to develop. And the other thing that's very strong and continues throughout childhood and is usually particularly amusing in toddlerhood is that the second thing that goes along with the curiosity and play and experimentation is mimicry. Mimicry is just fascinating across cultures because it starts really young, really, really little children mimic the things that the adults do around them. So that one of the reasons that it can be of humor to adults that are caring for little children is because they're sometimes shocked at what the little children have been observing. They see it in, in a mirroring way. They see this reflection through the eyes of a small child copying what they've been doing and they're a bit shocked to realize it because some of our behaviors we don't like to pay attention to. I think in modern life, one of the most common ones of those is how very tiny children imitate phone time. So they pick up a phone that's not on and they stare at it and pretend to press buttons at it or the same on a computer or they hold an object up to the phone and make noises like they're talking on the phone. 
very recently, as this is still time of the pandemic, a friend sent a little video to me to show me an infant who was going around pressing everything inside and then rubbing her hands. She was a really tiny toddler, but it was because she'd seen all of the adults going up to things as she moved in and out of buildings, presumably or shops, pressing a sanitizer for hands and washing hands. And she was pressing anything that looked vaguely like that at her height, all sorts of electronic covers and walls and all sorts of things. And she was pressing them and then rubbing her hands. So that mimicry becomes a key part of how a child experiences the world and what they consider to be safe and what messages they get as they do it. So there is something that's come through modern living, a propensity to be too clean. And there's been a lot of people have documented this, that what happens in your well-being if you haven't been able to experience dirt, good clean dirt, so not harmful, pathogenetic, not putting hands into feces or something that might have something more dangerous for a small child in terms of bacteria, more like the kind of things that are on kitchen floors and out in the garden is interesting in the context of where we are nearly a year into the pandemic, is that there have been some indications that there have been lower infection rates in countries where there's more rural people in the Southern Hemisphere in particular, where people might not have yet adopted the propensity to use a lot of antibacterial cleaning things or don't don't have access to those at all, who might have children exposed to many more experiences of having their immune systems activated and working from a young age. Now, there's not evidence yet to to conclusively say whether that's an influence in terms of rates of infection in some countries, but it's certainly an interesting thought about what happens around access to dirt. Another thing that goes along with a parent saying to a child, no, not that, it's dirty. Interesting message that is being communicated. And these sorts of attitudes and messages and mimicry that go into children experience from very young ages definitely affect how they might be later on. So a connection to something that might have been a curiosity, something that would be explored, is just as if it is a safety message, as if a parent is saying to the child, no, hot, hot fire. And if that message of dirty, dirty, yuck is overused, you know, maybe it's something necessary to say that same kind of communication, like I say about a dangerous bacterial situation, something that could be risky or perhaps in a country where, unlike Ireland, there's spiders that are poisonous or other kinds of things to avoid. But I'm thinking more of where that's done in excess, in more of a parental discomfort being communicated to a child where it's not actually necessary at the level of safety. It's a kind of a passed on preference. And these are when we get into discovering that just like the mimicry, the kinds of messages that come from the society around a small child start to influence their views at a really, really young age. 
And so one of them is one of gender. And it's very interesting, again, in terms of how young that is communicated and how young that is part of a socialization that might be in a particular culture and then might not be in a different culture somewhere else in the world. So these societal and cultural norms that happen. There's been some observational studies done where babies were dressed up in colors that are associated in the West with gender. So they dressed all the babies up in blue and some of them were biologically girls and some of them were biologically boys, but they dressed them all as if they were boys in the culture. And then they they allowed adults alongside of parents keeping an eye to interact with these small children. And the thing that was amazing was the kinds of play changed based on what the perception of gender was. So when adults thought they were playing with boys, they were a little bit rougher, they bounced babies a little bit stronger, and they made remarks about being tough. And when they did the same and dressed the babies up again, mixed gender babies, but they dressed them all as if they were girls in the culture, there was a a change again in the adults around them where they talked to them in gentler voices and soothing voices, and they played quieter games. And so when we think that we're seeing exhibits of gender behavior in young children, Often it is what is being responded to, what is being mimicked, what is being watched and what is being reacted to and what is being put on to the child, which I think is interesting when we look back at that period of our life. If there is something that we are struggling with and we're working through in our well-being and we looked in the first episode around sensory regulation and self-soothing and the ability to go from anxious states to calm states. And in this, it is something about our identity formation in relation to that cautious principle, or that sense of safety, or that sense of being enabled to explore and encouraged to explore. I think that may relate later on in life to a confidence in practical skills and physical skills. So being able to climb and walk up and down things and have a uneven surface. And there's some interesting studies again that talk about language development for very little children who develop better language skills on uneven ground. So if everything is flat and paved, then they actually don't learn some of the skills that engage different parts of the brain in balance and control of the physical body. And then that can affect a sense of physical prowess, if you like, knowing the limits of your body. So again, that letting a little child run and allowing them to fall, letting them climb, but not to a height that's dangerous, finding ways to explore their body physically is an important part of what some parenting writing calls natural consequences. So rather than the parents stepping in all the time in order to prevent any kind of injury, it is to give maybe some verbal cues and some warnings, you know, to hint and to let the child begin to 
start measuring their own safety and say, oh, ah, oh, you know, I think that, oof, you know, different kind of verbal cues that little children pick up on very well. But then also to stand back and to watch and see how they manage. I know that I had um, to try to learn this for all of my children, but one in particular was a real climber from very young, I think about one and a half. They started being able to turn around and they were on top of everything that they could climb, but they were very adept at it and they climbed really well. And they would, as they say, put the heart across you as they did it. And you'd, you'd think, I'll just lift you down from there again now. But eventually, by about age three, they were an incredibly adept climber. Once I had accepted that and understood it and kept a very good eye on their skills and the height that they were able to go to safely, I would go to playgrounds that had big parts of them that you could climb on. And maybe they were intended for bigger children, but I often saw my three-year-old had climbing skills that were often better than some of the older children. But I used to get reactions from other parents. And it was interesting because, again, these socializations, if there were other mothers about, they would kind of give me a look, but then they would decide to trust that I knew my child. But if my partner would go then mothers, if they saw the father with this child that was climbing up to great heights, would often interfere, would often walk over and say, did you see how high they've gone? You know, they would kind of feel like maybe he wasn't paying attention. And so that also talks about the different emphasis in parenting styles and for different reasons, the roles that people have taken on in society. And some of that has to do with early nurture, so a primary carer, whatever gender, who gets that very early bonding and attachment and carrying and knowing the child regulates their breathing and their heart rate in that bond. So maybe they do know when a child is feeling a bit sick or they do know with instinct. And then there's the other parents or relatives that are around the child and maybe they do things that are push risks a little bit. So let the child go out without their coat or let or let them climb to height. And that kind of interaction can give a balance to a child so that they have parents and others who support them taking some risks and others around them who'll help fix up a cut knee, solve an issue with them, comfort them. So there are different roles that parents and carers do take that are important at this play stage. And then one last part about stimulus that a child of this age is given to play with and to experiment with. And although out in the forest, if you imagine there is a lot of what's called loose parts play possible, so things that can be picked up and put on top of other things, things that can begin to represent something else in imaginal play, things that can be used as something to whack a tree with or move about or throw. There's all these different objects in a forest floor. Loose parts play means in a modern sense is often the difference between toys that are able to be assembled and disassembled and those that have a fixed function and can only perform that one function. So things like stacking blocks or hoops that go over a stick, 
or something that is a little a skill like a small hammer and and wooden pegs or something that's a puzzle that comes apart and then is put back together again for different sizes of slots all of those are loose parts play but a word about multiple different toys for children and multiple different sensations it's interesting in some of the education traditions of Steiner and Maria Montessori and some of the forest schools that are coming back into an understanding of some of the needs that children have. It is to simplify and to lessen the amounts of stimulus and colors and noises and things that are, you know, making an electronic choo-choo noise. There are some toys that children really love especially when they might not have access easily in, in in many homes. There's not access to a pet. So a toy animal, all of my children of different genders played with baby dolls and especially because we had four children so I would watch them mimic me feeding when I had an infant that was being breastfed. One of the older children would take and they'd be a little toddler of this age and they would take a doll and maybe even take a stuffed animal and breastfeed them beside me. What kinds of things does a child need? And I was inspired by Steiner and, and Montessori and forest schools was to have a lot of natural objects as part of the loose parts play. Some roughly sanded blocks that we made ourselves or Play-Doh, salt dough that you can make with flour and salt and water and, and cook it up and put food colouring in it or having shells or a sand pit because all of those are really nice sensations and they are very stimulating for a child, but they're also not overstimulating. They're not too bright, too noisy. Allow for a development of concentration. I read recently about another study of observation of children in a large toy room filled with every kind of toy imaginable tend to run about and have a look at everything that they can. If they're very tired, they finally get done with that. They might pick one thing. But in general, when there's many things, they're overstimulated and they don't know which to choose. But if you give a child in a room just maybe four toy choices, then they take a lot longer examining and exploring and getting to understand each of the four. So it's just something to think about in terms of what is stimulating and helpful for this age group. So what if there have been impediments to development at this age? And there are so many interesting understandings now of what we bring with us into the world in terms of our genetics and our epigenetics and our predisposed personalities. And so you can't lay everything at the nurture of what's going on around the child there's been particularly interesting studies about children who were twins, identical, genetically identical twins, who for whatever reason ended up separated at birth and who ended up in completely different environments, completely different families. And yet they have met similar developmental markers at the same time. They have often had similar preferences in foods and play when their parents have met and talked back over what they were like as small children 
they were strongly themselves and when they chose careers or things to study or interests or political views, even if they had completely different family life, they have ended up to be more conservative in their choices or more adventurous in their choices, more able and interested in new things or or more cautious. So despite the fact that there's lots that can go on at this stage, there's also lots of the personality of the individual child coming through that is part of their makeup. And it's very fun to see how clear that can be in still quite young children. But what I wanted to talk about was if this has been a period of your life where something has not gone along the developmental pathway as it would in the most ideal circumstances, in the optimal circumstances, both with your genetics and your abilities and with your environment. So if that combination, perhaps there's been some limitation to capacity on a physical or a mental, if there has been some limitation in terms of the environment in which the child has found themselves, perhaps there are very stressed carers, perhaps there's extreme poverty, perhaps there is trauma that has come through generations, perhaps there is addiction There can be many things that mean that child is not getting all of the kinds of safe space, exploratory curiosity and empowerment of being feeling they're able to do things themselves. So one other aspect of this stage is the development of control, self-control and very much so physical control. And that develops at different ages and stages, the control of the bladder, the control of when to know you're going to poo. And there's some very interesting parenting practices that have been inspired by indigenous parenting practices where it is a relationship and a sensation relationship between mother and child so that from a much earlier age, children are carried without having some kind of nappy, it keeps them dry. And they are carried by a mother and a mother or father or carer gets so familiar with the sensations from quite young infants that they can feel and sense when a baby is going to pee or poo and they can lift them away from themselves. And maybe if, depending on where they live, they have a spot they can go to, a toilet. And the this allows the child to read and mimic that particular process without what is called in the West toilet training. And so that's quite contrasting with cultures that do a lot of toilet training where the toddlers are cajoled and encouraged and all sorts of behavioral kinds of approaches to try to get a child to learn how to use a potty and then maybe a toilet And interestingly, modern nappies, children wearing artificial nappies of plastic and gel substances that wick away water from them is that they tend to train to use the toilet longer because they're later, because they're quite comfortable in the nappies because they don't feel a sense of discomfort and they get changed often. 
And so there is something that older parents that I know that had their children in cloth nappies, I used cloth nappies too for my children, that the children don't feel as comfortable and they're bigger and bulkier in, in a cloth nappy. And I used to try to just let my children run without any nappies when the summer came around. If they hit the summer at almost the right age, then through both mimicry and just leaving a potty outside, they tended to learn to do what we did quite with quite a lot of ease. But it is an interesting feature of that period. So children in orphanages and care facilities in Romania that came to Ireland who had not had the kinds of care and maybe also not adult behavior to mimic. They just had very tiny children surrounding them. And this important stage of play and curiosity and control hadn't happened. And sometimes also the ability to self-soothe hadn't happened. And I worked for a number of years as an art therapist with some children um, who'd had these experiences. And what I was able to observe and provide an environment in a art therapy play environment was regression to this age and to go again and to get into experimental sensation play and to go back through your body like movement and dance and play and things to climb on but also wet paint and sticky clay and blocks and so children playing games that were much older but were playing games from this type of developmental stage and also some of the language development that can be seen at this age and also some of the interactions and some of the fears of object constancy for example when I talked about child thinking that if an adult's gone that they didn't feel secure and they would cry and they would worry and some of that is obviously from trauma as well and from feelings of abandonment that can occur when a child isn't feeling like that object constancy has occurred where if the carer is not there, it's okay, they're coming back. And so going back to having consistent relationships and that being with new parents and being in new relationships with me, that can help repair, to help regress, go back, being able to confirm that there's one other aspect of this, which has to do with a feeling of um, natural consequences or a feeling of being punished or bad. And that's a really interesting thing again, because the concept of a naughty child is quite a late development in our modern concept of parenting. If you talk to um, people from older cultures and cultures around the world, or if you look back in history, it seems to have come in the European context, in the British context, it seems to have come at a stage when little children were separated more from their parents, particularly in more well-to-do households. And there are concepts of a little child being dressed up in adult clothes and 
educated and taught things in a very rote and regimented way in order to prepare them for powerful positions and in order to prepare them for an education that matched those powerful positions in society. And there is still, I think, something that can be seen in divisions in our society in whether children are allowed play freely or whether they are told that they're from quite young being bold and maybe punished for that in some way. Um, that could be by being given a slap, that could be by being shouted at. Uh, and that's a kind of punitive punishment. And I'm not talking here about what I can imagine is something like a very tired mother kind of just shoving a child away in a firm but gentle way. I'm talking about when the control factor, which when I'm talking in uh, another episode about some of the permaculture principles and the idea of working with nature rather than against her. And yet we have tried to control a great deal of wildness. And I think it's really pervaded our sense of control over the wildness of young children. So one of the things that I have done is also work with adults as an art therapist, an eco-nature-based therapist, a facilitator, and one of the things that always interests me is how denigrated this kind of play in particular, very early childhood kind of play, like finger painting, for example, or like working with Play-Doh or building sandcastles. If you open that possibility again to an adult or a group of adults, there is a great yearning in us, in many of us, to return to that kind of play. There are many layers of judgment on top of that, where we might say that is childish and it's disregarded because somehow something, that term, the idea of something being childish is considered to be a negative. And so we don't often allow ourselves in our societies, in modern life, to play. And it's something that I've heard talked about by other people who've had the privilege to spend time in indigenous cultures, and I've had a little bit of exposure to that myself. And it is interesting for me because one of the things you see is that adults in some of those communities do play exactly like children. And there isn't somehow a judgment of this is only for children and if it was a childlike thing or a childish thing to do, it wouldn't be considered negative. It would be considered, how fun, how good, let's, let's play these silly games. Let's experiment. Let's build something. Let's squish something and let's have a laugh and let's have a giggle. And I think that's something that we can learn from looking back at this kind of period of, of development is whether that's missing in our lives, whether there is a way to allow anyone around us and ourselves to enter back in to loose parts play in the forest, on the beach, in our crafting, not trying to make something 
but just trying to break things apart and explore them, play with them and see what they do as materials and have a laugh and play some of those early, early childhood games in terms of hide and seek or whatever takes your fancy.